quite pleased to see the turnout. So this is the last of a set of three sessions held the first in Joburg on Tuesday, where there were about 70 people, and uh, yesterday in Pretoria there were about 35. So I'm quite pleased to see that everyone's braving the traffic and the rain and whatnot to come out and participate. Um, I think these are some really important proposals that will have far-reaching implications for our industry and for our clients, more importantly. So thanks for coming out. So when I was planning this presentation, I tried to think of a way to make it interesting. And I came up with absolutely nothing. So, so the next best approach is to actually just run through the proposals as quickly as possible and then move on to the livelier part of the session, which would be the, the discussion. The purpose really is to collate industry feedback, particularly from ESSA. So bear with me as I go through for the first 30 minutes or so as I go through them, and then I'll hand it over to you guys. Okay, so in terms of background, um, National Treasury first started talking about retirement reform in 2011, I think it was, and then it was mentioned in the minister's budget speeches subsequently for the next three ones. In the most recent budget speech, he, met, he expressed concern that trustees or trustee boards weren't carrying out their responsibilities, or um, well, at the way they were carrying out their responsibilities, let's say. And this latest set of proposals concentrates on three aspects of those responsibilities of trustee boards. The first category can be, is pre-retirement, so um, the appropriateness of pre-retirement investment portfolios was questioned, and the first set of principles is outlining what is a suitable pre-retirement investment portfolio. The next category think, uh, considers what happens when people change jobs, so preservation and portability, which will come as no surprise to any of you that that is a problem in our country. And the final area um, up for discussion is post-retirement, so what happens to, to individuals when they make the biggest decision of their lives by buying a post-retirement income with their life savings. So there's been a period of public consultation. I think the proposals have been out for just over a month and a half, somewhere there and final submission is due 30th September. So there's my email address, and I'll have it again at the end for those of you who want to um, take it down, otherwise you can just send it through the RMC. If you could send them to me by the, by the end of next week, that'd be fantastic. It'll give me time to coordinate and distribute amongst the committee members and whatnot. So starting off with the first aspect, which is pre-retirement. The definition put forward of a default, uh, uh, for a default investment portfolio is up on the board for you. I'm not going to read it, read it to you. But while you're reading it, I'll just explain some of the logic they've, um, they've put forward for this. They, um, they, say, they, they feel that, well, the minister or national treasury and, his, and the team feel that current investment portfolios are generally inappropriate. Uh, the words they use are complex and expensive. Now, um, They've referenced some, quite a bit of overseas literature in terms of overseas experience, in terms of def the success of defaults in changing investor or member behavior. The theory is that members would generally choose the path of least resistance. So that whatever, whatever option requires them to actually do the least will um, be the one that they end up following. So you can actually influence behavior by getting those defaults right. And they also say that um, have taken lead from the UK and the US, where, which do have such pre-retirement guidelines in place. These rules will apply to all funds registered under the, under the Act, so that's RAs, preservation funds, beneficiary funds, employer funds, with the notable exception of um, the Government Employee Pensions Fund, which is not under the Act. All right. 
and which is actually the biggest part of South African retirement money. So um, that is a point that we plan to address with them or raise. There are 11 requirements put forward for these pre-retirement portfolios, and they're arguably um, quite onerous, but trustees need to, at any given point in time, show that when they've chosen this default, they've taken these 11 things into consideration. The first one is that the default needs to be appropriately designed. And when we talk about the requirements or the appropriateness, we, talk, we mean appropriateness for members who will automatically be enrolled into the default. Um, that's, that's a direct quote. So the default needs to be appropriate in terms of its design, and that covers its objective, its asset allocation, its fees, and its risk and returns. Now, when, decide, when, when setting the risk and returns of the portfolio, you need to consider the member's risk return preferences, their likely future term of membership, and the logic behind that is that they want to start changing trustee behavior. I didn't completely understand this, but let me, let me put it to you. They want to start changing trustee behavior or the mindset from accumulating the most amount of cash at retirement to actually what happens in post-retirement. So I'm not sure if likely future term of membership is the right way to encourage that, but we can discuss. They need to consider the financial sophistication of these um, future members or likely members and their access to financial advice. Now, how trustee boards what does appropriate mean? How trustee boards are expected to get this kind of information or understand this, get this kind of understanding of their membership is, it's not clear um, what level of depth do you need to go to. The strategy needs to be adequately communicated so, uh, and regularly in a clear and understandable way. We're not sure how often regular means. Is that monthly, annually, every three years, every time there's a change? And it's not obvious what clear and understandable is. So when you think about, um, so for example, you have to disclose fees and charges regularly, but not just fees and charges, it's also their impact on actual and prospective benefits. So you start thinking of things like reduction in yield or whatnot, but I mean, I myself, you know, our industry struggles to get our head around it. Um, Intuitively, it's not, it's not, it's not something that just comes naturally. How do you explain, and explain it clearly to the man on the street? And, um, the strategy needs to provide good value for money, and what they say there is that they need to consider a corporate or wholesale standard instead of a retail one. Right? The argument there being to try and leverage the purchasing power of the fund. Passive and enhanced passive strategies need to be considered. The objective is to try and raise awareness of passive strategies amongst trustee boards. So it's not to say that you have to have a passive allocation, you just need to be able to show that you've considered it and it is or isn't appropriate for whatever reason. Uh, this, this is one of the interesting ones. So the investment portfolio can only be for investment purposes. What that means is that there cannot be any risk benefits Trustees can provide risk benefits outside of the fund, outside of the default investment portfolio, so in separate arrangements, but it can't be within. And particularly, member benefits can't depend on the member's reason for leaving, so death, disability, withdrawal, or the reason for withdrawal. And that automatically takes away any sort of exit penalties, and one of the points they explicitly mentioned was smooth bonus funds. So it 
if you read this definition, it, does, it doesn't explicitly say no smooth bonus funds, but you can't have a market value adjuster. Now, smooth bonus funds can't generally function without these because how do you pre prevent against selection? Treasury in the press release specifically mentioned this point and invited consultation on it. So, um, no performance fees. It's quite a contentious proposal. They, they say that the reason for that is they're trying to encourage a competitive asset manager or fund manager market. And I don't know if this is the right way to go about it. It feels almost like they're addressing performance fees in bits and pieces and different pieces of regulation instead of just dealing with it as a whole. So if the intention is to, I don't know, I mean, reduce costs or avoid exploitation or whatever it is, I think there's just other ways of dealing with it than just saying, um, you can't have it in your tax-free savings, you can't have it in your investment portfolio, but you can have it in other places. What's particularly interesting is there's a huge drive by um, government, I guess, to get long-term pension fund money into infrastructure and development assets. So, you know, domestic development, social welfare. But this goes completely against it. I mean, those asset class needs need performance fees to function. They're not going to function on a, just a base fee. So it's kind of it's kind of they're kind of contradicting themselves, in my view. So no loyalty bonuses can be are allowed. So the way I understand this is that it's just the flip side of a termination penalty. If I don't give you something, if I, give, if I penalize you for leaving, or if I uh, give you reward you for staying, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, again, the intention here is to. Well, I guess increased competition because the, the, I think the reasoning is that they want members to be able to come and go, join and leave as they please so that providers don't get too complacent with sticky money. But I don't know if it's, again, I don't know if it's the best way to achieve um, that. Right. Regulation 28 com compliance comes as no surprise and members cannot be locked into the strategy again Along, that, along a similar framework of the money shouldn't be sticky to increase competition. So, you know, if your service and your performance is terrible, the member should be free to leave. And hopefully that would encourage you to not to improve your delivery. Again, this contradicts the objective of getting long-term pension fund money into development assets, because if you need to liquidate those assets within three months, then it kind of narrows down your universe. The strategy needs to be regularly reviewed. So we're not, again, we don't know how often regular is. What does need to be covered in that review is the net performance, the cost, and the take-up rate of the, of the default. So on to the next section, which happens upon changing jobs and default preservation and portability. The, uh, Okay, so the problem here is that the current default in South Africa upon changing jobs is to pay you in cash, the part of least, least resistance. If I leave my employer and I do nothing, I'll get the money in cash. So they're not putting forward mandatory preservation, but they're hoping that by changing the default, they can influence behavior. So first of all, um, when a member leaves a fund, that's the first, and I guess that's, what the, that's the preservation component, the member needs to automatically become paid up instead of being paid out. And there's a few responsibilities on the fund here. The, the fund needs to give, or the, yeah, the employer fund needs to give the member, member a paid up certificate within one month. They need to invest the member into the default investment portfolio that we just spoke about, unless the member has indicated otherwise. Right? And 
Very importantly, the fees for paid-up members cannot differ from those active members, and that's a very controversial point because the fees are going to be different. The, the costs are going to be different. So are you encouraging cross-subsidies, or are you protecting one group of members at the expense of another, which is not the role of a trustee. They should be acting in the best interest of all their members. So the next element, I guess the next section there, kind of talks to portability. So you've preserved your money when you've left your employer. Now what happens when you join a new employer? The intention is, and I agree with it, it's a noble intention and I think it's a good idea. We just need to make it work practically. But I mean, it's not the days of DB anymore. People have multiple jobs throughout their careers and because people are generally lazy or don't know, they end up by the end of their careers when they retire with several pots of money sitting everywhere. So if you could consolidate that all into one place, not only will you benefit from hopefully scale, but also you just have a better idea of your situation. I mean, I know I've got pots sitting around and I just don't know what, what's where and what my total, my total holistic plan looks like. So, I mean, I'm one of the guilty ones. Again, the, they, they put a lot of requirements onto the new employer. So the new employer fund has to accept the payments and they have to obtain a list of all the pay, previous paid up certificates. They then have to ask the member if there's any one of those amounts that he doesn't want to transfer in. And if the member has not indicated that they do not want to transfer in any of those amounts, then they have to arrange for transfer in. Now, this is all up to the fund and none of this can be charged for. So the reason for putting, they put forward for putting all the responsibility on the fund is because if the member does nothing, this will automatically happen. Now, one of the proposals um, that's come from the committee members is why not make the default, well, just pay to the new employer, then everything will happen automatically. So we can bounce that around in a little bit. Some of the other rules for paid up members, so no new contributions, no risk benefits, same rules for retirement and early retirement, and you need to provide, and this, I felt that this one was snuck in there a bit, but you need to provide access to a retirement benefits counselor before that money is transferred or withdrawn. Uh, we'll come back to the retirement benefits counselor later, but it was actually quite, you know, took me a few reads before I saw that there. The point in the middle, DB funds. When a member becomes paid up within a DB fund, from the date of becoming paid up to the date of transfer up, the, their benefit has to increase by a minimum of CPI. So how does that work then for a fund that doesn't have CPI guaranteed increases? Do you have to maintain a separate pot or what is the plan? Moving on to post-retirement. This is the definition they've put forward and the intention is to extend the support and I agree with this, I agree with this point strongly. Members get a lot of support in pre-retirement in terms of guidance and default options and that type of thing, and then when you get to retirement and you actually have to make the biggest decision of what to do with this now, you're kind of left to yourself, you're left to your own devices. So the intention is to extend that pre-retirement support into post-retirement, which I think is noble. It's also to avoid what they call the risks of the retail market, so poor financial advice, poor decisions and high charges. So Assis is very up in arms some of, the, some of these um, quotes, but... Then also, I guess in a similar vein, they want to leverage the purchasing power of funds. So I guess if you buy a bulk living annuity, perhaps you could use the size of the assets to influence fees. And generally to increase the competitiveness of the market. 
Now remember that this is not mandatory. Members can opt out. What ASISA has suggested is that instead of an opt-out process, it should be an opt-in. It can still be your default. This is well preferred approach, but you want members to opt in because, for example, if your default's a life annuity and you go and buy that, there's no getting out of it. So it's a pretty big decision to kind of be made without your consent. There are, I think, six requirements for the annuity strategy, and they're very similar to the ones we found for pre-retirement. Again, the appropriateness. Trustees need to show that they think the strategy is appropriate, considering members' level of income, the degree of income security, investment, inflation, and other risks. Member decisions required, considering their financial ex expertise and access and affordability of financial advice. And the level of income protection to beneficiaries. The communication point comes up again. Good value for money. Again, the, the standard needs to be the corporate to wholesale standard, not the retail one. Fees and charges, again, need to be disclosed accurately and regularly. The impact on actual and prospective benefits. What's interesting here is uh, they gave an example of implicit costs need to be included. So if you use a derivative for protection, for example, and you give up some of the upside, you would need to report that upside foregone as one of the implicit costs which um, is going to be fun. So the concept of the retirement benefits counselor comes up again, and at least three months before retirement, members need to be given access to this person. His role is to give, a, no, well, to give information on the default strategy only. So he can't, give you, he can't tell you anything about anything that's not the default. He can just give you information and no advice. If you want any advice, he, we suggest, well, we're going to suggest to Treasury that they should make available a list of approved advisors, or preferred advisors. It's not clear how the cost of the retirement benefit counselor is going to be covered. So it has to come out of the fund, but do you charge it to the members who use it? Do you charge it to all members? How does it work? And also, I mean, if you've got a fund with one person retiring a year and they hire a benefits counselor, what is he going to do the rest of the time? So there were some good ideas on that yesterday, which we can come to in the discussion. Right. Strategy needs to be regularly reviewed. So the components of the review are the take-up rate of the default, the cost, and the performance. So the first option for default annuity strategy is an in-fund living annuity. The, the regulations don't explicitly say so, but the press release says that this living annuity can be outsourced to providers by, by a fund-owned policy, which I guess, I mean, why do that? Why not just go the retail route? But maybe, it, maybe it's the bulking argument. The portfolio can have, can be, can, well, the strategy can only have a choice of three portfolios, and all portfolios need to be consistent with Reg 37, which is the pre-retirement rules, pre-retirement investment rules. They've put forward age-related drawdown rates. So you'll notice that there's no minimum, which is a welcome development. And um, we've, we're going to ask them how they came to these rates. We're very interested to see their approach. And one of the suggestions is that they should take the lead from the UK and make these drawdown limits interest rate dependent, because 7% in one interest rate environment is not the same when you've got hyperinflation, for example. The, this is one of the scarier or more onerous proposals. So not only did the trustees have to come up with an appropriate living annuity strategy, but they then have to monitor the member's drawdown 
basically until death. So that's extending the role of the, the responsibilities of the trustee from retirement, another 30 years or so. Uh, they need to keep an eye on what these members are drawing and identify people at a risk of a substantial fall in income, warn these members, and then arrange to convert them into life annuities. Now, this is just fraught with landmines, in my opinion. I mean, what is a substantial risk? What happens if you don't catch a member? What happens if this is just part of a member's portfolio? You don't know what other income they have around. So what if the members, yes, he's drawing 17, but it's to go on holiday because he doesn't need the money for anything else. What if the member is sick and you convert him into a life annuity? I mean, he's drawing down because he knows he's gonna die. Now you've, so yeah, it's, it's warning bells there for me. Uh, assets need to comply with Regulation 28, which I believe is a welcome development. So the first option was default, well, sorry, in-fund living annuities. The next one is in-fund non-guaranteed annuities. Now, in-fund guaranteed annuities already exist by, by way of defined benefit funds. And the press release clarifies that the regulation has actually always allowed for in-fund non-guaranteed annuities. However, this regulation aims to, I guess, clarify that or just say how, you, how to go about it. They tell you if you do offer an uh, in-fund non-guaranteed annuity, there's a few different um, requirements. So members need to be informed that the pension is not guaranteed. That's fine. You need to maintain separate asset pools for these liabilities, more assets and liabilities. What's interesting is that they, they kind of tell you how to go about calculating a pension funding ratio and how to distribute that, which effectively gives you a way of, tells you how to calculate the member's pension. Everything needs to be done on a best estimate basis and regularly updated in line with the member, with the valuator's views. Whenever there's a pension, uh, pension sorry, a funding surplus or deficit arising, that needs to be distributed over two years. Now, a good question that was raised on Tuesday is, but you only have a valuation every three years, so how are you going to distribute it over two, what happens in the third year? Are we supposed to be valuing every year or how's this gonna work? Which I think is a fair point. You need to have the same, broadly the same pension increases for different classes of members, except for CPI increases. And changes in the increase policy for existing members are only allowed if subsequent assets and liabilities for people who retire after that is ring-fenced. I've included point six for completeness, but I have absolutely no idea what that means, so if one of you can shed some light on that, that'd be great. The final option, so you have two in-fund options. One is the living annuity, and one is the in-fund non-guaranteed annuity. The final option is in, to outsource to an insurer, much like it currently is, and this, aside from the DB strategy, is the only option that really provides you with access to longevity protection. They put in some rules around how this can be done, and any guaranteed annuity that is purchased from an insurer has to increase according to a formula which is independently available or verifiable from publicly available sources. So for example, a, an annuity that says I'm going to give you an increase of 50% of the all share index return every year, that's perfect, that, that'll fly. So the intention here is to avoid what they call structural conflicts of interest and lack of transparency in management actions and the discretion around increases, which is a fair intention. The inadvertent consequence is that um, 
they're going to increase the cost of the guarantees. So, for example, by guaranteeing the index return, the insurer has to hold capital to back that, and you take away the opportunity to outperform the index. But I think the more important point is that now you've got to guarantee mortality as well, and that's going to have a bigger impact on the cost. So by definition, mortality experience, you only know after it's happened. You're not going to know that um, in advance. So there's no way that you could incorporate that into a formula because you will only know it once it's happened, and that's too late. So instead, if, if insurers have to hold this, the capital to back the guarantee, um, it's, insurers have to be conservative. That's, you know, in terms of um, regulation and prudence. So you're going to end up holding capital to back the guarantee, but you're going to hold more capital than the expected cost of the guarantee at the end of the day. You are inside of prudence. And I think that's going to be compounded with the impact of SAM. Direct sales commission can't be paid. Oh, sorry, the proposal put forward by the committee members so far is to ask National Treasury to instead relax this requirement and rather have trustees just be comfortable with the product and the increased formula. And, yeah. Direct sales commission can't be paid out of member accounts. And it's not too clear what the intention is there. If it is to avoid commission altogether or um, skewed incentives, then that should be the point because it's quite easy to innovate around direct sales commission and you know, pay it out of somewhere else and recover it. And trustees need to be satisfied with the long-term financial strength of the insurer. What does this mean? Do they need to go and do a due diligence on everyone they consider that, um, as the provider, or can they rely on the current FSB regulatory framework to give them a level of comfort? So that, in a nutshell, is the other proposals. Going to open it up for discussion. What I've done to help the discussion is I put down the comments received to date from committee members. So that's the Investment Committee and the Retirement Matters Committee. Some of the key themes that were coming out through the comments um, to help, I guess, generate thoughts and um, guide the discussion. So the, if we can deal with default investment portfolios first, some of the key issues that came out there is the cost of the benefits counselor, which I've mentioned, the definition of appropriate, what constitutes adequate communication, the use of insurance and pre-retirement, and the lack of performance fees. I think there's more after this, but let's deal with, let's, let's start here. Uh, just, just a heads up that um, I, I, the point is, I'm not, I don't, don't profess to have all the answers, so I don't know what, I, I'll, I, where I do, I'll share my understanding where I do have it, but where I don't, we will, the, the objective is to collect the questions and comments for National Treasury, so. Over to you. That point came up on Tuesday as well. If you ask questions, you're going to get answers and you might not like them, so maybe it's best to leave them as it is. And the example that came up was TCF. It's quite non-specific, but it works. So 
And I think, sorry, just before we carry on this, um, another comment that came up is we must also, we can't just tell them we don't like this and we don't like that and this isn't going to work because then they're going to say, screw you, we're just going to do it anyways. So we need to be supportive and show the principles that we do agree with and where we disagree with something, try and put forward a, or we'll be asking for clarity instead of just, say, just asking for clarity, say, well, this could work. So try and be constructive about it as far as possible. So try and keep that in your thinking. Uh, well, to, to, to one question and one comment, really. Um, the no risk benefits in a default portfolio, I really struggle to understand what that means. I mean, the way you explained it, it seems to be no approved risk benefits for those members. But I would say those are not in a default portfolio because the, the premiums are taken off the contributions before they get invested. So I struggle to understand what that clause means at all. Uh, and then oh, I see what you're saying here. Yeah. The second, the, the, the comment, uh, where I do think the actual society can add value and would be well worth commenting is um, practically uh, how, how soon is it possible to actually implement these regulations, even if they were uh, legislated tomorrow. Because let's say they were legislated, there will be a date of the legislation, but the effective date could, could be different, and I think has to be different because otherwise you will be non-compliant, all funds will be non-compliant from day one, which would be extremely risky. Uh, so I, I think it will be well worth the retirement matters committee, you know, considering given the frequency of trustee meetings and given the number of funds, practically how, 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 how is it a two-year lag, is it a one-year lag, is it a three-year lag? I don't want to be prescriptive on answers, but I strongly suggest that's where the actual society can add value. So the question has um, already oh, it's already in our draft um, response, and we've asked when do you plan on uh, implementing these and how long will we have to comply? And I think what goes hand in hand with that is how are they going to treat existing arrangements? I mean, do now all smooth bonus portfolios need to liquidate and move into something else within three months because then we're going to have a problem, or are you going to give us some time to implement these arrangements? Also, what happens, what another question that's come up there is, does this only apply to future contributions or? I guess my question is probably more to the Retirement Funds Committee in terms of how we're looking to respond to, to this. Um, as, as always, and, and I'm not working actively in the Retirement fund space, so it's really, I, I work more in the Life Fund space, and it's the constant challenge that we have when this legislation comes out is, how do we separate the society's role uh, from commercial interest roles? And I think the biggest element where I feel that the society can add value is saying, okay, these are the things that you're proposing, what are the unintended consequences? And, and, and I, have we, from a retirement matters or from a society point of view, started to, to sort of try and say, well, if this is taken as it is, unchanged, what are the consequences that we see that would be undesirable in terms of meeting the proposals uh, or, or the objectives that, the, that Revenue is trying to achieve or, sorry, um, Treasury is trying to achieve? So the question is, how do we separate the, our professional response from our commercial views? Is that correct? So yeah, we've, we've been very diligent about that. So all of us, I mean, we don't, we don't just work on the Retirement Matters Committee. We all have um, day jobs, and what we do is... Uh, it gets tricky at times because you've got to put your professional hat on and you've got to use you wearing your commercial hat. But then we round-robin them between the committees until everybody's happy. So, um, and we're very careful to look for product pushing versus principles and impact on members. 
My question, and I, I can't remember what we've put in, is just on the, if trustees just have one portfolio, I mean, where, what is the opt-out? You know, <laughs> members are defaulted, that is the, the, you know, where do we go? I mean, We have absolutely no idea. It's a question that we put in the comments. So how does it apply to funds with one choice, with no choice? Sorry. Thanks. I've got a, a risk management question. Um, if these defaults have been in place in other countries like the UK or the States, is there some experience of how the trustees defend themselves? Because it seems to hold them wide open to uh, post-fact um, accusations that you didn't do the right thing. That's actually a good point, um, because the question has been raised of what protection or what recourses there's trustees and what, how long are they liable for, because you can have bad outcomes even though you make good decisions. So in 30 years' time, when somebody dies and their son comes and says, why did you move them into a life annuity, is the trustee still liable? So Treasury previously mentioned, made much mention of protection for trustees, which has gone very quiet recently. So we've, we've raised the issue, we plan to raise the issue. What's concerning is that if they really are responsible for all of this in their personal capacity, nobody's going to want to be a trustee unless you pay them a lot of money to make it worth their while. And that's, well, who's going to carry the cost at the end of the day? It's going to be the member. Yeah, perhaps just a comment around the, the angle and the, the width, I guess, of the application for the draft regulations. I think there's been a lot of discussion also the CISA on, you know, it's very clear this applies to all funds, and yet they are very clearly written from the perspective of a company-sponsored retirement fund. So there's some real challenges applying this in the sort of, let's call it retail RA or preservation funds, and also DB funds. You know, I think a lot of these things are just patently not relevant, especially on the annuitization side to, to defined benefit funds. And interestingly, there's actually a lot of differences between the actual regulations, draft regulations, and if you read the explanatory memo Absolutely. or even the press statement. So there's a lot of contradictions or, or differences, which I think will be useful to just clarify yeah. as well in the ASO response. Now, when I read the press release, I was like, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't see that. So there were lots of new things for me. I think the other um, fund that it's not too clear about on is umbrella funds. So. Uh, just in, uh, commenting on the question about the risk that trustees will be exposed to with this, my experience is uh, a heck of a lot of employer-sponsored funds are basically doing this already. Um, either they don't have investment choice, DC funds, they're without investment choice, in which case the trustees are already open to challenge if the investment strategy produces disappointing results for members, uh, or defined contribution funds which do offer investment choice uh, in very many cases, in most cases, in my experience, the trustees set a default strategy and they're open to uh, the risks that come along with that. So I don't think there's anything new here. It, it, it maybe is a little bit disappointing that having talked about the safe harbour provisions previously, Treasury doesn't seem to want to put these into the regulations. But um, uh, even without those, I think this is where a lot of funds and trustee boards are anyway. That's a good point. So I guess the question comes in, I guess, more in post-retirement, or becomes a bigger issue there, where they Any views on insurance or performance fees? So they do have their place. 
So if it's conflicts of interest that are the concern, there's ways around that, but um, just to outlaw it is not necessarily appropriate. So I think just generally, uh, because the solution costs more or is more complicated, doesn't make it the wrong solution. Uh, maybe two questions quickly. One first round process. You've made a few comments around our comments and the two committees that have drafted, I guess, a first draft. From here onwards, will that be circulated to members or will members, normal members, get an opportunity to add to that? So what is the process around that? So we will get, we will take comments up until the, from, from ASA members up until the 18th and then we will finalize it between the, uh, the two committees from the 18th to the 30th. Am I correct, Natasha? So before it goes to Treasury, right. And then my second comment is just around your question around insurance. Um, maybe it would be useful for the society to just consider international developments. Um, and you know, one one example would be the UK and the yeah. introduction of intergenerational risk sharing through their defined ambition funds. And maybe just to comment around. Um, the use of that, as well as some other leading so pension systems around the world. Guidance, yeah. I guess, on the other aspects. So the there's the Danish country. system and some other countries that that utilise insurance principles. And mm, I think, as absolutely. the actual society, yeah. it's important for us to have that voice. Yeah. I think David McCarthy's background. I think he's been driving this, the main um, drive behind the regulations. I think he's come from the UK, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, absolutely, it's a valid point. Um, I think the one area where the actuarial society can add quite a lot of value in my view is actually putting a view on the table on performance fees and if it is that actually it has its place and by banning completely you exclude key um, asset classes like infrastructure alternatives, I think it's important to then be proactive and make a counter proposal. I know that CIS is working on um, some standards around uh, performance fees and disclosure. Personally, I think that's going to come across quite uh, conflicted. I think that's an area given that performance fees are basically it's option pricing. Um, the, the problem that Treasury has with performance fees is that it's extremely difficult for a client to compare whether they're getting value for money. So if you just compare a base fee versus a passive fee, Plus, you also, on top of your base, you're getting a performance fee. Yeah. How do you know if it's too much, too little? Have you taken into account the fact that implicit, you actually have a put option that you've got in place? If you underperform, you don't have to pay the client back. That is where I think the actuarial society, if, you, if the view is, don't go quite the route of banning completely. Let us help construct yeah. decent measurements and how you can do it. Coming from the society, I think will be you know, I think a lot more credible. Yep. Uh, and then the other thing is maybe suggesting good trustee training around these, these initiatives. Part of the regulation should be how we support trustees to train them for all of these requirements and what is then expected. Great. Um, just the point regarding insurance is not allowed. Um, I do think that downside protection in some form is useful. So I'm a little bit concerned that that point is throwing the baby and the bath water and the bath and everything else out. So, thank you. 
Um, should we, not as a profession, be you know, pushing back slightly on some of these proposals? Um, because I'm not sure how we got to the stage where National Treasury is actually prescribing investment strategy, which is left to a professional, generally an uh, investment consultant, um, where we could potentially have much better outcomes uh, if we had, say, professional trustees or professional investment experts on boards who would apply their judgment on all of these factors. Yeah. Because no fund is identical and you obviously, for example, performance fees, that example is quite clear. Yeah. Um, in some cases it's good, in some cases it's not. So I think a much simpler option would be not for, for this to be prescriptive, but to get strengthen boards of trustees and Absolutely. actually investment consulting yeah. industry. So I mean these, these proposals took me by surprise as well because I mean I think I was saying to Nikki before the presentation that consulted to them been a suite of papers in 2012 and 13 thereabouts and everybody dropped everything and consulted with each other and came up with an industry response and submitted it in two months and then it went silent and then I mean, the way I feel, this just came out of left field. I didn't see this coming. So um, I'm not sure how we got to this stage. With regards to improving trustee boards, absolutely. But also remember there's member elected trustees as well that you have to cater for. And I don't know how you can impose professional standards on them. I um, don't know how that will work in practice. Sorry, just maybe to, I think to add to the previous comment on performance fees, uh, I, I do think that there's quite relevant just to stress, I mean, that the, so the standard being worked on at the moment for performance fees uh, by CESA, it's very clearly focused at quite vanilla listed, listed asset funds. Um, the impact on this as it stands, it is really not possible to have a sort of infrastructure alternative development finance assets, which typically are done in, done in close-ended 10, 12, 14-year uh, duration funds without some form of carried interest, uh, if you just understand the, the nature of the, the cash flow and the capital deployment. Um, so as they stand, the current regulations effectively completely outlaws that. And I mean, I do think it's a shame if you think the broader national discourse is around what can be done to improve private sector funding in infrastructure development finance, and yet the very focus here is sort of, you know, passive enlisted. And, Understandably, some very good reasons for that as well, but one must be sufficiently nuanced and subtle around, uh, you know, not, not completely killing the industry. It's a complete contradiction, and I'm just not sure, I mean, do they not think of the repercussions, or uh, it just doesn't seem that they have, but I mean, I'll give them more credit than that, but you can't be asking us to invest in infrastructure investments and then saying, but, we, but you can't pay performance fees, so what are we supposed to do? Moving on to preservation and portability, um, so some of the comments that have come through so far is that when a member becomes paid up, he has to stay paid up until, well, until the employer, until he instructs the employer otherwise. So a lot of people with hands-on experience on the ground said, but some, you'll, you'll just never hear from some people again. So what happens? They stay paid up forever. Can you not sweep them to an unclaimed benefits fund after six months? Regulated fees for paid up members, I mentioned earlier, is this really fair to other members? And is it the job of the trustee to be taking care of one group of members and against others? The additional workload required on funds, which can't be charged for. And um, 
one of the committee members' proposals that the default should rather be, instead of just making him pay it up, just transfer him to the new fund. One consideration there is the tax directive that you would need. So if you left the member in the fund, you wouldn't need one. But default, to transfer him as a default, then you're going to need, can they do away with that tax directive requirement? Because it's zero anyways. And the uh, requirement for DB funds to increase by CPI. Just one comment on, on, the, on the, the point the cost for paid up should be much less. I think that comes from the thought process in the document uh, that you don't have to receive a contribution or reconcile a contribution, therefore yes. your administration costs a lot. Yes. That is a side. We don't believe that uh, as an administrator because, yes, if you were doing things on paper and reconciling manually like 50 <laughs> years ago, maybe that would be the case, but it actually makes no difference to how many members there are in a fund when you do your monthly reconciliation, when you're doing them in a more streamlined automatically today. So I think that's completely wrong. It's completely the other way around. Because you, for a fund, you've got no cost saving by, by having no monthly contributions for some members, and you've got significant extra costs by building a servicing model for paid up members that you didn't have previously. A question on the second loss bullet, and I'm also working in the life side, on the retail side, so maybe I just don't understand this side of the business. But my understanding is that the intention is about preservation, and if I leave someone's employee, I might not go to a new fund. I will be either self-employed or I'm joining a new company with no fund. So my understanding of what they're trying to get to is that you will have a preservation fund within your fund, and you will have that member there till he is 55 or whatever the case yeah. may be and ultimately retire. So although I get the point that it's a problem, I think that's exactly what they want. So I'm not sure whether we've got an alternative mm. solution for that, but it is a struggle to see why we think there will be a new um, fund to transfer. Yeah, so I guess the default rate should be qualified with where there is one. Sorry, just a small point on the DB balances. Um, I think that they haven't studied Section 14B with sufficient care because I think they're going to hit a problem with what the minimum benefit provisions are. It would have been much better for them to have said transfer out your at least your minimum benefit value yeah, instead of um, yeah. and then it's treated on a DC basis. Okay. Even if you're within the fund, you preserve then on a DC basis with your at least your minimum value. Just on a, on a technical point, I don't think it's on the board, but if I'm not mistaken, um, if a member is by default preserved, it says it must be preserved into one of the default portfolios. Um, if we assume that a member actively opted out of the default while an active member, um, should you not rather just default preserve him in whatever he chose? So there could be an unintended consequence there. Agree. I'm at the default is preservation, and I'm not sure how careful people are not to lose their paid-up certificates, but what happens if they lose the certificates and they lose the money altogether? Sorry, I didn't get that. Uh, members, if they paid cash, at least they guarantee they receive the money. If they get a paid-up certificate, but they may lose, may lose it and actually forget that they have this money. I'm not sure. <laughs> so some thoughts around the default annuity strategy is well, one, no amount of regulation or prescription will, aside from mandatory savings, 
or mandatory enrollment will account for low savings amounts. So the solution there is really mandatory savings and mandatory preservation, in my view. Uh, there is a requirement in the communications to show average incomes of the default annuity strategy, which could have problems. For example, if you show the average income of a retiring member of your fund, but one retired with 100,000, another retired with a million, it's going to create false expectations and problems. So rather, I think once the way to standardize that is to say show average income rates or annuity rates. So income per 100,000 or something like that. On living annuities, it's not clear who provides ongoing advice. And if it's the retirement benefits counselor, they're going to end up needing a lot of them if the intention is for them to receive annual advice, even if it's on drawdown rates. Uh, the requirement for the trust is to monitor, warn, and convert to life. And um, one member felt that should they, should they perhaps, before allowing funds to go into living annuity, revisit one of the earlier proposals whereby a certain minimum level of protection income needs to be purchased before any additional can be used to purchase a living annuity. Yeah, just on that, I mean, we've done some modeling on, you know, the, you get the big discontinuity. If you're, if you're going along a living annuity trajectory and you suddenly have to convert, you, you, you don't convert it at that same rate. So it is definitely better to have a, a minimum base with a, a living top up yeah. rather than the other way. Um, I think you've alluded to it earlier the problem with not knowing what other money is available. Yep. Um, the interesting aspect is the whole aspect on join, a member joining a new fund for that receiving fund to survey basically all member certificates and pull the money in. Maybe a solution could be a, you know, a similar survey of money available at retirement, pull it in, at least trustees have a better understanding of the total pot of assets. Um, so, yeah. so one point I forgot to mention was that they made reference or mention of the potential opportunity for an information exchange whereby um, all providers would put a list of this member's details and paid up certificates in one place and that would, I think, go a long way towards helping uh, overcome the issue and also help deal with un unplanned benefits. So maybe that same database could be used to get an idea of this person's situation at retirement. Look, you're not going to get a sense of his discretionary assets, but it's still better. Um, I've noticed that the drawdown rates um, is age-related in this new proposal. Now, I don't know if that applies only to the default portfolio or to any other portfolio, because if there, if there is a distinction, then that would be the overriding factor and it will be exploited by some advisors. Yeah, absolutely. So the point was raised that if you impose all these restrictions on the drawdown, then the, net, the drawdowns become a token. And it's actually, why would I buy that living annuity when I can just go and buy one on my own, I can draw what I want and invest where I want and choose what I want. So if you're too prescriptive on it and there's too much of a difference between the default and what's commercially available, it's also going to have adverse. Are there any thoughts around um, the retirement benefits counselor? So in the discussion yesterday, we started thinking that example I used where um, if a fund has one person retiring a year and another fund has, you know, 100 a month, and they both have to employ one person, it doesn't really make sense, because what's this person going to do the rest, of, the rest of the year? So, actually, this is my idea yesterday. Can't we come up with some sort of centre, or it could, retirement fund counselling can almost become a service that's provided 
by a third party. So a provider would have representatives in different parts of the country to get over the requirement to have to, like, well, the need to have to travel if you want to get face-to-face -face advice. And at any given point, they can say, okay, this is the fund, this is the default, let me go and meet the member and tell them about their default and charge a fee for service, perhaps. And then if this person only has one, this, this fund only has one person retiring a year, then at least he has other funds to look at the rest of the year. So that is just an idea. Yeah, so sorry, on that point as well, the, um, when the guy retired, he might also retire from three funds at the same time. So is he going to see three different counselors or, Absolutely. So you can or just one counselor with a central database of all his money? Mm. So. Um, I think one for the profession to grapple with, um, and, and part of this regulation comes from information that's been out in the industry um, for a number of years since the Treasury's first papers. Um, there's a few points that they made strongly, the one being that um, subsidization in this country goes the wrong way. Um, uh, we, we got rid of apartheid in 1994, but we, we're still in a situation in guaranteed annuities where the poor and ill um, subsidize the rich and healthy, in, using Treasury's words. Um, <clears throat> and I think for a profession in responding, we need to um, we need to grapple with that thorny issue. Um, and I think the the caps that have been suggested around living annuities um, is an attempt by Treasury to say how can we make these a sustainable vehicle. And the requirement for trustees to convert is as a result of well, people never actually run out of money, as they say. They just the, the money dwindles, so the, instead of getting increases, it goes the other way around, and there's a there's double whammy. Um, and all of that in the context of an industry where, um, on the latest CESA statistics, 89% um, of people choose um, living annuities. And um, in response to your and your Hans paper, one of the senior members of the profession said that living annuities are potentially the worst mis-selling scandal about to happen in South Africa. Um, <clears throat> so, so I think we, we're in a situation where regulation is being imposed, but, but perhaps as a profession now we should be um, speaking into that and, and trying to um, work with the regulations as they've been given and, and but perhaps give guidance from a professional perspective on, on how customer outcomes could be improved. Just to comment on that, um, in terms of his choice of living annuities, 90% of people choose living annuities, and I just thought, I'll to chat with um, Nikki just before the presentation, it's actually not a choice because they don't even know they have one to make. Um, they just, you know, who, in their minds, choices, do you go Coronation, Alan Gray, or Investec, and yeah, that's my policy. So they don't even know they have a choice to make. I think it's the education and the, yeah. Um, just a point around um, the in-fund annuities. Um, Treasury does make allowance, obviously, for um, guarantees. And I think in the preamble, they even speak about, you know, sponsors potentially providing guarantees on those annuities. 
Um, so I, I think as a profession, we need to just comment on that. Um, obviously, you know, the, a guarantee really depends on the strength of that guarantee and the kind of the financial resources of the person providing that guarantee. And so I think we should be, you know, arguing that there needs to be some kind of consistent regulatory framework so that when a guarantee is provided to a member, they know that there is sufficient level of protection. So there was a lot of feedback about that, and uh, I think it's not the first time we've commented on the potential for regulatory arbitrage between pension funds and um, insurers. So if the way they worded it in the CISA was presumably they're doing SAM for a reason, and that's to protect members. So why doesn't it apply to pension funds? It should be the same. And one of uh, some of the proposals that have come through from, that I've seen a lot, well, come through quite strongly, is that they should impose minimum standards for pension funds whether or not they guarantee the pension. So, for example, if you want to offer an in-fund non-guaranteed annuity, you should have a sufficiently large pool of people and a diverse base to do it across. You should be using appropriate mortality rates. And if you are providing guarantees, you should certainly have the expertise to be able to do so. Just back on your retirement counsellor, um, I do think there's a big conflict, a potential conflict of interest where it's a phase accredited yeah. provider who, you know, I'm going to give you advice, but, and if you need, you know, by the way, here I can, you know, study your product from an expert. So, um, and, and then the other thing on, on the, the living annuities is just, um, it's, it's hard to argue with, you know, 60% higher pensions on day one than what you can get on a guaranteed. So. I don't think the only solution to that is going to be to address the um, sales incentives, and I just don't know what they are. I don't know how, but somehow. And just on the, the point on in-fund, and, and picking up on, on the point made earlier, is that actually a comment that we want to make, asking for the same regulatory framework, because as a profession, we have actuaries that are evaluators of insurance companies, we have actuaries evaluators of pension funds, um, and the actuaries are given guidance by the profession, in fact, as to what's appropriate. Um, isn't, isn't that what we want as a profession? Shouldn't we be giving the guidance? We shouldn't be asking for regulation. Absolutely, but in terms of solvency requirements and capital adequacy requirements, that type of a thing, I think it's more, it's a possible evaluating part of it. Um, the <coughs> in-fund annuities, if they're separated from the active member pool, will mean that the pensioners are, then lose the balance of cost subsidy from the employer. Um, yeah. That's one consequence. And the other consequence is, presumably, that will mean all DC funds will now be subject to actual valuation, which means the employers will then be exposed to the Section 30, brackets 3, uh, uh, guarantee on liquidation. Um, and that may also apply, um, it's not quite clear how it would apply, apply also where you have those um, paid up, uh, the, the preserved members who get the mandatory pension, uh, inflationary increase. Who, who guarantees that? So. Yeah, it's just on the uh, regulatory arbitrage issue. Do we really, well, it's just a question, do we really want to make that argument? And the reason I say that is there can be good justification why the regulatory requirements for solvency in your pension fund and uh, insurers different. Uh, insurers for profit, 
Um, and a uh, pension fund is not. It has a trustees, uh, generally quite conservative. Um, also, if we are making that point, we're potentially saying that our current guide, guidance that we here ourselves have put together is insufficient. Um, you know, the, the, the pension fund industry is well regulated, good guidance, there's actuaries. If you put that in place, it means you're impacting all the current uh, DB funds. I, I'm not sure it's, a, it's, you know, I think that they have their, their requirements that have been built up over many years of expertise, knowledge, etc. Surely that should be, um, be sufficient. So I guess the question then becomes who stands in if the pension fund goes under and the pension was guaranteed and what sort of, what sort of recourse do the members have? Gregory, your point? Maybe just on that point, I mean, it has been debated, for example, in the UK, so obviously we've still got a much bigger uh, defined benefit industry, you know, this exact point, you know, why shouldn't those employers, who are effectively the guarantors of last resort, be subject to the same sort of strict standards around, you know, spare capital or solvency? Um, ultimately, if you approach this from a member perspective, it's actually very difficult to argue against it. So I don't think it's around governance or oversight, yeah. it's around the security of the guarantee. Uh, and maybe just the second point around sharing that cost of longevity protection there at the bottom. I th you know, it really talks to a sort of a with-profit type concept also out of fund. You know, mortality or longevity is, because it's effectively probably a one-way bet and it is the ultimate guessing game. You know, in a way it's a sort of risk that really lends itself to a form of cost sharing. Because uh, what you currently have with just allowing for a pure guaranteed outcome, it can be done. It's done typically by insurers or you get longevity bonds internationally, but it is very expensive by its very nature. So, you know, I think from a, from a member perspective, a form of cost sharing there and risk pooling is, is ultimately probably the best outcome for from a member perspective. So, I mean, in the previous papers, they did mention using risk sharing to manage the cost of the guarantee and also exploring um, ways to help reduce the cost of guarantees by one, potentially increasing the supply of inflation linked bonds and two, looking at ways to share mortality with the private sector, or the cost of mortality risk with the private sector and um, we'd like to ask them to revisit those concepts. Thanks. On the uh, two-year amortization period for surpluses and deficits, um, there are no mention in that draft regulation of solvency reserves or any of the other contingency reserves you might hold no. for longevity. And the fact that you're, you might determine a surplus completely differently from the way you might determine a deficit. Oh, that's and, my point. And this has just been lost completely. No. They've done. So I guess, I mean, the rationale there is probably that you can reclaim any losses by decreasing pensions, but... So, because there's no guarantee, you don't need that level of prudence and you can rely on your valuation skills, but I just don't know. The rationale behind this two-year period was put forward as one, um, if you increase or decrease the pension quickly enough, it'll actually have a consequence on the member so that he therefore understands that there is a risk to the strategy and it's not guaranteed, so he feels the pain sooner rather than later. The second one is that because there's a consequence of it, um, trustee boards be more careful in selecting the asset mix. And the final one, which is the one I do buy, is it prevents intergenerational cross-subsidies. 
And then just finally, some points that may or may not have come up during the discussion. Um, and of course, anything else that you guys can think of that hasn't been raised? Just a, a sort of a general comment that struck me going through sort of in, in your presentation. Some of these principles that they're insisting on in the defaults actually are pretty sound. Others of them have consequences. So you have your default portfolio, then you provide a whole load of alternatives and then actively encourage members to go into the alternatives where you can have some other ways that are not necessarily to the benefit of members. Are we looking to comment on those aspects that we think in here that are applying to the default portfolio that should be extended across all portfolios, for example? Agreed. And also think, I mean, just generally, it's, um, it's human nature to like, focus on the negative and become this won't work and that won't work. But I don't know if we can wrap up by trying to kind of say what we do like it about the proposals and how could we make them work. Perhaps any ideas on that? Just on that last point that's on the slide, I don't necessarily agree with that. These regulations are all about the default. You know, by definition, you will foster innovation to compete against that default and attract yeah. cash out. And you can no longer have the, the kind of the laziness that the money is just washing around at you through advisors, etc. That's a good point. So, you know, there's positive in here around, mm. but it's, it's that kind of thing. That's a good point. Mm. If anything else does, if you do, does come to mind, um, there's my email address again, as promised. And of course, if you don't have time to write it down, you can send it to any one of the committee members.